what if every learning or conversation started with, here's what I'm struggling with? Yes. Instead of, here's what I know, or that's wrong. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Exhausted with Politics, a spiritual framework to move forward. This is a God Squad episode. And you know, it has been a minute since we've had the God Squad on. So just a super quick word about that. God Squad is our program series where we bring together various faith leaders to talk about politics and religion. We call these improbable conversations for people of faith and no faith at all, because talking politics wasn't hard enough. I have really missed the God Squad, so I'm extra excited to share this program with you. Pastor Gary Schultz of First Baptist Church of Tallahassee will be facilitating this time. And he's joined by Dr. Dan Lesham of Hillel FSU and Betsy Willett Zierden, who used to be here representing Good Samaritan United Methodist Church, but now she's living on an island. For real, y'all, that's not a joke. So she gets to preach to her island community. Now, doesn't that sound dreamy? And finally, our guest panelist today is Latricia Scriven of New Life United Methodist Church. Also, just a quick note, during this program, they reference a fascinating study about the state of our politics. If you want to look into that further, we have a link for you on our website. Just head over to villagesquare.us slash squarecast and then click on episode 49. We are thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of the Created Equal and Breathing Free podcast series. All right, let's jump into it. Here's Exhausted with Politics with the God Squad. And here's Pastor Gary Schultz. Welcome to our our discussion of the God Squad today on being exhausted with politics. I'm I'm thankful for my my fellow panelists, got Betsy Zierden, Latricia Scriven, and Dan Lesham, who are going to join me to discuss this important topic and how our, our faith ought to inform our understanding of politics. So there's a year-long project that was recently done by a group called More in Common called the Hidden Tribes of America. And it came up with a description of the majority of Americans when it comes to politics, the exhausted majority. We all know it's now become commonplace around the holidays. You start to see these news segments. You start to see these articles that, that are trying to tell you how you can talk about politics or, or not talk about politics with your family. And the majority of them basically come out and say, just don't do it. It's, it's not worth it. We, we know that there's increasing sense of, of division uh, and us versus them when it comes to our families, our neighborhoods, our community groups, our houses of worship. So what this study demonstrates, they, they surveyed over 8,000 people 
for their political identity. And instead of dividing America into two camps like we tend to do, conservatives and liberals, they identified seven groups, devoted conservatives, traditional conservatives, moderates, the politically disengaged, passive liberals, traditional liberals, and progressive activists. And their contention is that two to three of these groups tend to dominate and drive the discussion about politics in America. The progressive activists on the one side were about 8% of Americans, and then the devoted conservatives on the other side were about 6%. And they also throw in what they call the, the traditional conservatives there because they align pretty closely with the uh, devoted that just don't feel those things as, as intensely. And that's another 19%. So those three groups, that's about a third of the people in America tend to drive the entire conversation, leaving a two thirds majority that they call the exhausted majority. Now, the reason they single out that one third is because they tend to be really unified on what they believe about controversial issues. Things like race, immigration, guns, sex, gender, the causes of terrorism. But not only they're highly unified, they tend to be highly distrustful of those who disagree with them. And so when people in America talk today about how everybody on both sides just seems to hate each other, they're usually referring to this discourse. But there's that two-thirds majority between those two dominant wings. They're not necessarily politically moderate or centrist. They hold a, a variety of views on those issues, and they're not necessarily checked out of politics. But what unites them is that when it comes to polarization, they see it as a negative, not as a positive. They're much more open to finding common ground. They're, they're more willing to be flexible when it comes to policies, and not just willing to be flexible, but, but upset when others aren't willing to be flexible or compromise or discuss, and they decry this increasing sense that everything has become politicized, that everything has become an us versus them. So what we're going to talk through in our next few moments together is why there is an exhausted majority, what, what we might be able to do about it, and how our faith ought to inform and minister to people at all parts of the political spectrum. So, so to start us off, and I'm going to throw this question to our panel, do you find this concept of the exhausted majority helpful? Why or why not? Well, I'm tired, so I can identify <laughs> with being exhausted. Um, and yes, I, I, I think it's, as, it's very helpful. And as we shared a little bit earlier, what's helpful to me too is to see the study and the figures and, and to recognize and realize that it really are, it's only 33% that is driving the conversation. And that that's encouraging to me. We need to, the rest of us maybe speak up more or do something different. Yeah, I tend to agree. I find it helpful. I find it helpful because rather than focusing on the polarization, it says that there is a unified middle that may be um, more together than we think, because often we hear from the edges, from the margins. We don't always hear from those who are in the exhausted majority because we are exhausted <laughs> and just don't feel like saying anything. So I think that it is helpful and that it gives hope. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with both, with all of you. I just wonder 
exhausted doesn't quite seem like the right term to me, but it, it, this might just be me, but it, it feels more like exhausted sounds like I'm avoiding like work or like avoiding effort. What I feel more is like I'm avoiding toxicity, hmm. which almost seems like a kind of slightly different valence to it. And it feels like so much of the what what we call discourse, because that's the word we have long used, even though it doesn't seem like it's appropriate to the kinds of conversations, even conversation doesn't seem appropriate that are happening around politics, especially on social media, um, is that these venues that used to allow us to discover our own and each other's humanity seem more to be about closing off the possibility that anyone is human other than me or worthy of the protections that we ascribe and the care and the empathy we allow ourselves to give to other people. So that discussions on Twitter quickly turn, you know, this question about how long in any given debate before someone mentions the Nazis or Hitler that happens so quickly in online conversations is a signal like of how not conversational they are. So that these spaces have taken over the space that used to belong to discourse and replaced it with a kind of toxic, virulent, uh, domineering I that I'm right because I'm free and I hold these opinions because they're true in my eyes. And so it seems like the spaces in which people are engaging with each other don't allow for actual true engagement. So the idea of entering a political discussion is so loaded with so many things that seem hurtful and damaging that it's the last thing on earth I think I and a lot of the students I speak to here at FSU want to do. Hmm. You mentioned social media there, there Dan, and, and that leads into this idea. What are some of the the cultural forces or ideas or values that, that really seem to drive not, not only this exhaustion, but the causes of this exhaustion? I mean, what, what are the things that are driving this uh, in, in our culture right now? Well, I mean, one of the, that excellent article points out that the business model of the media is now polarization because it sells, right? It's provocative and it sells. But I was thinking about that as I was reading the article. I thought, well, it's not only that, but now there's people hopping on that bandwagon and you have T-shirts and coffee cups and fashion statements that pick up on this polarization and then market it in all sorts of different venues. So again, it feels like it's more prevalent than it probably is because we are seeing it everywhere, hearing it everywhere. Mm. at least through our media outlets. I do think at least, you know, I will mostly work with college students and certainly social media is a major driving factor. But I also think that COVID has exacerbated the size and influence of social media conversations in the kind of overall conversation sure. landscape. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't been able to go to the theater, the th things like the theater and um, live music and all these things that bring people together that have nothing to do with our political views, but maybe more our musical taste. <laughs> Those things used to bring people together in a space where you could enjoy being human without having a conversation about politics. And it's, you're right. During COVID, those things were cut off. We were cut off from those. I'm sorry, Latricia, I, I talked over you. It's okay. Go right ahead. <laughs> that was good stuff. Um, it's the nature of conversation. So I think with social media, 
because of the nature of things like, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that's made to make very quick statements. We have learned to be intellectually lazy Mm -hmm. and we don't need to think sometimes all the way through perspectives because we can just make a quick statement. Mm -hmm. We may not have thought through it. We give commentary on books we've not read, on movies we've not watched, on statements that we have not spent time with. And so that lack of attention to thoughtfulness allows an intellectual laziness and a conversation laziness, if you will, that hasn't always been the case. And so we haven't built our skills for how to have healthy dialogue, how to have healthy agreements and disagreements, how to engage in discourse that has gravitas Mm -hmm. and can be allowed to sit in the space for a long time. So it has trained us to get in quick and get out quickly. And I think that just adds to the exhaustion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that people that are used to and enjoy thinking deeply about topics are, you know, like frustrated beyond exhaustion by the kinds of conversations we end up seeing around us. And it's like, there is no point for me to intervene. Before, before I did this work, I worked in Holocaust denial education. And this was in the earlier days of all this social media stuff, but already it was becoming clear that people were being trained. And I'm making really sweeping generalizations trained to interpret. It's like a heuristic that something that can be said cleverly in 140 characters sounds more true than something that cannot. And so as we were trying to educate about Holocaust denial, it's very easy as a denier, if you're speaking in bad faith, if your whole point is actually just to make an insult, it's very easy to make some kind of a point in 140 characters, but there is no nuance. There's no way to say something that is truthful in that context. So I think like to your point, uh, Latricia, it's kind of like structurally, like the form is the content, these forms that we're using more and more to communicate simply refuse nuance. Right. Yeah. They're reductionist. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally reductionist. And I, and I can also tell you that I can't spell anymore either. Uh, somehow they're related. You know, you just type and the spell check comes up or not or, oh, yeah. So that it also contributes to this sort of intellectual laziness and um, no need to to write things, think things through, edit. No. In your all's experience, do you, do you think that you're you're seeing these things in our in your communities of faith? Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are they as present? Are they increasing? I mean, well, like yeah, go ahead. What well, I was going to say, like I was sharing earlier, just briefly when we were talking, that we have biblical precedent for compromise and how to live together. I mean. Dan, you, you're, you're more the expert in this area, but I'm thinking about when, we, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were learning how to live together, right? They were learning how to be human. Well, this is the sort of wilderness we're in. Mm-hmm. So what is our faith and what does the Bible teach us about how to live together in the wilderness? And, um, we do have, we have biblical precedent for compromise and conversation and coming out on the other end with a plan that'll work for us. I use the example of, Paul and the Jerusalem Council, as they were 
learning how to share the gospel, the good news with the Gentiles. And they weren't all in agreement, but they came up with a plan that they agreed to. And I see that happening even in our, well, maybe it's especially, I haven't been at Good Samaritan now for about, it was a year in July, but I'm at St. George Island and it's a smaller church. And I know who thinks what and who thinks what, you know what I mean? And they know. And yet it's an island. We live, live together and pull together because there's maybe a hurricane coming. And I, and I see the church working to minister to the poor in Franklin County. I know that my preaching has shifted to being about how do we come together in order to be people of faith. Uh, there's no doubt I've sidestepped some issues because they, they're not, it's not helpful right now. So yes, for me, I see, I see our little congregation working through and around polarization in order to accomplish mission. I would say that I'm grateful that I get to serve in two spaces that honor conversation, dialogue, thought, questioning, you know, turning to question. I served at a local congregation at New Life, um, United Methodist Church, and also campus ministry. And the nature of campus ministry, right, is that we get to engage God with our minds and <laughs> love God with our minds. And bring our whole selves to the table. Bessie, to your earlier point, point, I was thinking about that, how we have a biblical precedent for compromise. And it's interesting because I think we have much more of a precedent for compromise with people who believe as we do. So we have a precedent for Christians to compromise, right, together. But how do we deal with the situation when we're looking at people who believe differently than us? How do we come to the table? How do we navigate those kinds of divides. Um, one of the articles suggests that uh, politics has become the new religion in America as we see the declining of religion. And if that is true, how do we come to the table with what seems like different religions? Because there was a time when if I really wanted you to believe like I did, or if you disagreed, we're going to work it out on the battlefield. Somebody's going to die. And that is not what we want. So the question then becomes, if politics is the new religion, how do we come to the table and reason together? Yeah. Well, we need a church split. We need a lot more parties, don't we? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just having two two political parties, it doesn't lend itself to 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 what the church does. We just you know split and split and split, split off because we disagree. <laughs> you know, people of faith tend to have different expressions of those faiths. So now that's true, but not all church splits have been without the kind of violence that Latricia was just talking about. Sometimes lasting hundred. For more of course, years. Of course. So I think that I think it's a really interesting point, Latricia, because you think about some of these cultural phenomenons around political spaces where there has been violence, or you hear people saying, when do we get to use the guns? So it it what strikes me about the validity, what seems absolutely right about that comparison is that you reach a point where you're grasping for precedent. Like, what did we do when we were this stuck before? And someone's like, oh, this is normally the part where we fight. So it, to me, that's like a, a signal that like, that's when you need to ask like, okay, what path am I on and what vehicle am I in? 
that that is the only option I'm now seeing, or that that seems like an inevitable next step. And I, I mean, do we see this as a phenomenon that has been on a path of getting worse? Like we're talking about it now because it seems like a crisis now, but a lot of these points have precedence before COVID or before the last two presidential administrations and before, you know, Ronald Reagan, like, you know, you think about these really divisive, where these polarization moments start happening and isn't polarization kind of an inherent aspect of the American political system. So then you start to say, well, is the problem that politics has taken the fore? But then you realize that religion has been just as divisive and bloody uh, in the relatively recent past. So I'm just, I, I'm, what I'm curious about is, I don't know, I, I studied genocide and I did a really interesting course where I took students to Rwanda to study post-genocide reconstruction. And I've always been struck, or ever since I learned about it, that one of the immediate things Rwanda did, because this was a country that after genocide, as opposed to the Holocaust, where Jews then mostly by and large went and lived elsewhere, after the Rwandan genocide, the neighbors that had been killing each other went back to being neighbors again. And so the most immediate thing is, given that all the conditions are the same, how do we prevent it from recurring? And one of the first things the Rwandan government did was to establish debate clubs in cities across the country. And it's like a debate, that sounds pretty divisive, right? But what they realized was that it actually led to healthy conversations right. yes. and especially undermined People had, they felt that the culture had too much obsequiousness to authority and that only through debate do people realize that they can be the kind of authors of their own narrative and they didn't need to accept what someone higher than them had been given them as an instruction. Hmm. So I guess I'm going to stop with the idea of like, do we need more, is, is the answer more divisiveness or like what is the version in American society of a debate club? Hmm, that's a great, that's a great question. Good thought. I don't know. Well, and, and building off of that, and, and that is, this is, this is all good stuff. Bu building off of that, then what, what are specific areas of our faith? We're all faith leaders that we can help bring to bear in people's lives mm -hmm. that would allow them to do this, that would lead away from both the fringes mm -hmm. and the exhaust, the exhausted majority. What do you think, Gary? No, well, sure. I, I've got a lot of thoughts about this. Well, you, you think in terms of, of what, what does our faith do? And of course, I, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You, you follow, we, we follow Jesus and, and we're to find our identity ultimately in him, not in a political party, mm -hmm. not, not in the politics of this world. Uh, while, while we live for him in this world, there's also a, an element that goes beyond this world and, and helping people to understand that, that, that we live in a world, I'm, I'm going to use that, that biblical word sin that's broken by sin, which means that we don't get everything right. And we live in a world that doesn't get everything right, mm -hmm. but we trust in a God who is working to make things right and that that's coming. And so helping people to have that perspective of who they are and, and what life is about, I think that has immense implications. Uh, Latricia, you brought up the idea of, of politics as religion. When we make politics our religion, what we're doing then is we're losing that element of, of there's something beyond the things of this life. So the things of this life become ultimate. And so it becomes winner take all. Mm -hmm. and, and as we begin to help people to understand that, that 
we can't live life this way. The life shouldn't be this way. I think that begins to make a big difference mm-hmm. and, and hopefully reverberates out from there. That's really interesting. Other thoughts on this? Well, Gary, you kind of you touched on it without using the words, but we have the concept of, of the kingdom of God come to earth. Absolutely, yes. And then, Dan, there's a the concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world. And what I have found to be uh, the, the way to hope and peace, <laughs> we're, we're lighting the candles now too. Dan, you talked about Hanukkah. We're lighting the candles of Advent. And uh, this week we're on the candle of joy. But leaning into the hope and the peace and the joy that comes from simply alleviating suffering for one, one child. You know, if you give a cup of cold water to this little one, you give it to me. Yeah. When you visit somebody in prison, you're visiting Jesus. We we believe that. So I don't think that that is a, a simplification of the problem. I think it's a shift of focus. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. How, how, how What can we do that's contributing to positivity and, and, and real relief of suffering for even if it's just for one person? Yeah, it makes me think. Right. It, it sends me actually back to the I and thou, and it makes me think about, to go back to an older Jewish moral and ethical philosopher, it makes me think that maybe we're not in the religion of politics, but it does seem like we're in the religion of myself mm-hmm. and I, and this whole conversation about like, I will fight to the death for my freedom. And then you break that down. And what what is it that, that how is you, it's a concept of freedom that's defined entirely by what I want to do and what I feel like I should be able to do. Mm-hmm. And any limit is perceived of as an external imposition. So yes, kingdom of God, like that's, that's like a limit that's like steals a million miles away for most people, but I'm even going to gravitate to the politician or the commentator who reaffirms that I am a singular and absolutely entitled human being on this planet and that I have no responsibility to anyone other than me. Mm. And actually everyone has the responsibility to respect my absolute autonomy. Mm. So this is something that just a recently deceased leader in the Jewish community, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs from England talked about a lot that we, one of the things that's making everything worse is that we've stopped we saying, we've Mm -hmm. stopped thinking about ourselves as pieces in a community and we've started to do I saying. And for him, that was connected in some way to the rise of technology, connected in some way to the kind of isolation that also happens during the coronavirus period, which he experienced. But it's a, it's part of a larger trend towards trying to give as much autonomy to me and my desires and my absolute right to manifest my own, you know, fantasies, as opposed to subordinating any part of that to the to the good of others. And I think that Betsy, when you talk about visiting someone in prison or you talk about feeding someone who is hungry, that that extra step of saying that, of seeing them in a way as greater and their needs as greater and more important mm-hmm. than mine, uh, I think is, is kind of a, a skill or a muscle that we ha- seem to have lost culturally. And maybe that is on us as leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I like that, Dan and Betsy. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the I language has crept 
into our theological spaces, our church spaces. And our songs, our our, choruses. Right. And so everything has become about I. And so whereas even if we take the biblical narrative and story, um, what I appreciate about the Israelites, blessings are curses. They're coming together, right? It, it's happening to all of us together. And we have a shared story. Y'all met my mama's house and she actually has a real telephone. And so you hear a ringing in the background, maybe. Love her. Give her hugs. <laughs> and so it has crept into our spaces. And so we've lost that sort of, um, and I don't think it's gone for good and gone for everyone, but that thing that ties us all together, God make us one with you, what we say in all the time on Sundays, one with each other and one in ministry to all of creation. From an African point of view, I am because we are, because we are, therefore I am. And Jesus, while was always about the community and the everyone, And somehow we've taken that message and said, as long as I accept Jesus as my personal savior, right? And as long as I'm doing the things that need to be done, forgetting that we are a piece of this entire puzzle together. There is no me without you or vice versa. Right. Even to the point of interpreting my individual success in life as the sign that I must be doing good and I'm doing what God wants because I feel pretty good right now. Right. Yes. Well, and, and, and yet we had COVID, right? So my breath, the very breath I breathe and the very breath I breathe out has implications for everybody around me. And, and it, it was a global pandemic. We are so connected. We are connected through our breath. To grasp that and to come back to that, yes, you need to lean in the, that direction. But there is an African word. I don't know, Latricia, if you're familiar with it. Ubuntu? Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it that, that same that's, that's, that's what goes into the I am, we are, we are, therefore yeah. I am. Yeah. Right. Yes. I love that. I mean, I've heard stories years ago, uh, a friend that was on the mission field and hung her underwear up to dry in the village, and they, and they kept disappearing and from a western viewpoint she's like who's stealing my underwear (laughs) but from the village concept it was everybody's underwear (laughs) yes it was for us to share and once she finally understood that well she didn't hang them outside on the line any longer she didn't want them to be shared because they it belonged to the village so Right. And so how do we bring that into our everyday lives? You know, as we said, we're in the season of Advent. After Advent, our family practices Kwanzaa and we go through the Kwanzaa principles. And it's all about the collective, right? The we, collective work and responsibility and unity and all of those things and reinforcing what it means to be human. And to be human doesn't mean that we stand as an island in isolation because none of us would be able to survive. And everything is about the collective. Yeah, that's right. We are all so interdependent. Yes. To point that out. Yeah. We had a really interesting experience with Hanukkah, which just happened, which was something that I kind of believed would be true. But so I, I wonder, talking to us about what we think we are doing and what our communities want. So like we serve students. So we often imagine that as what can we do for the students, right? And we think like maybe a student who's come a lot 
might be interested in helping us put on a program. Like they'll come and help decorate or they'll come and help do this. But when we had to make 150 pounds of potatoes into 800 latkes last week, <laughs> we sent out a call broadly about like who will come and help us make latkes to feed your fellow students. And people, I want to bang the table. I'm not that kind of guy. But people who never came to anything before came to help make latkes. Yeah. And speaking about this two-thirds part of the community, right? So there, there's obviously a part that just wants to be fed and served and shown interesting things and like be spoon-fed, right? But I just wonder if, we're, if we don't plan enough for, around, and give enough opportunities to those people who the first thing they're going to show up for ever is a service opportunity. Right. Which is certainly true, as you said, of, of students, college students, right? They are very interested in showing up and community service and even justice work and advocating. And I found that many of them are interested in things that go beyond just seeing about themselves. And how can we be in partnership with rather than thinking that we're coming to the table with the answers? I mean, that's what I like about the story of the woman at the well, when Jesus comes and they have this fabulous conversation that we think only happens in a few verses, he is the one that comes to the well looking for something. He's like, hey, I need something to drink. You, you got something I can use? And then the conversation ensues. Then they begin to share their stories. Then she's like, hey, come see this guy. Come meet this guy. So how do we enter into the space not thinking that we have the answers? Mm -hmm. But even understanding that people that may be different than us have something that we need, have a thing that completes our lives, you know, have a different perspective that helps make the whole thing a thing, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, how do we get away from the answers entirely? How do we get yes. back to the questions? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and a related question here is, you know, as we've talked, I mean, one of the things that, that tends to drive this is this idea that everything is politicized or polarized. I mean, is this how we we counteract that narrative? I mean, how, how can we explicitly do that and help people to see that, that no, that that's not the way that we ought to view or live life? Well, I mean, just to point out, perhaps in a sermon, a sermon that, hey, I read the study and guess what? All the noise we're hearing, mm. the, the, all the controversy and the polarization, it's not all, we don't all feel that way. It's just getting but more airtime. It's just 10 guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's refreshing. And I mean, it, I, I kind of knew that in my heart of hearts because I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. But to see that there's been a study done very well done uh, to share that information in itself has given me hope. Now, some of the other things we read were not as helpful, Gary. Some of the other articles that you sent us, uh, there are some, some some academics that don't believe that we'll get to the center anytime soon. Uh, but as I shared, I'm an optimist. As an academic, as an academic, I can attest we're trained to view the world that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think your point is really well taken. And part of me thinks like, let's just avoid all those hot topics. Right. And a, one probably can't forever. But I just feel like there is a shortage of wonder. Right. I've always been disturbed 
in Judaism and in other religious traditions with, with the with the fear and trembling piece. Like you should tremble before God. And I've always I've always felt that there's something wrong about that. And I, I think that ultimately, like a lot of things, as a Jew living in America, I think it's got to be a problem of translation. Like, let's go back to the Tremble original. Tremble with awe. Tremble that's with awe. Right. So that's what I finally came to. Yeah. I think like awe is another one of those muscles or like abilities or skills or techniques that it's just absent. It's like, it just feels like, like if it was color, like we used to have color, life in color or society in color, and we've drained all the color away. And we only want to see two things. We only want to see yes and no. We only want, that's like, the computer logic has invaded our logic and we can only think the way computers think. Which is, which is, a, which is a Western ideology and perspective in a lot of ways this, that's creeping into everything, this sort of either or. Why can it not be both and, you know, in terms of wondering and in terms of the coexistence of all the things, it is both, it is and, and it can happen. Yeah. Right. And Thank you. From a, since we are faith leaders, I would say that one of the practices that is uh, is found in all of different religions, the practice of meditation, the practice of contemplation, moves moves a person or a group away from this dualistic thinking into a place of mystery where you sit with the questions. That you yeah. Sit with the questions. You sit with the wonder. You sit with the mystery of life. And somehow yeah. you come out of that space more united with people that might be very different in their thinking, but you've experienced the reality of union. I keep seeing it in my biblical reading recently because I've actually been teaching a prayer as meditation class this semester for students. Oh, good. Yeah. Really for me, but I've invited students. <laughs> but it's been so profound. But like looking at the biblical sources to like bring text in to help us think about it so often, I'd never noticed this before. The text will say, think with your heart. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's been poorly interpreted to me as, oh yeah, people used to think that the center of thought was in their heart. And I think that's not the explanation. Right. It's just that as Westerners, we have decided that all thought happens in the brain, mm-hmm. that that's all that matters and repress. And this dualism is the source of it, right? The mind and the, then the body. But mm-hmm. I think like there is this tremendous power to like, trying to see or trying to see the Psalms will often talk about seeing through your heart. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Like, and whereas like negative theology used to have a negative connotation, there's something been really powerful in this meditation class about let's try to think about something that we absolutely can know nothing about. What does that mean? What can you, what can you, what does it mean to think about nothing or not nothing either, because that's something, but like, there's something tremendously liberating about trying to get away from this this trap of binaries. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just another word on wonder. I just was jotting some things down earlier. And, you know, we already mentioned Hanukkah and that you have the lighting of the candles and we have the Advent candles. And on Christmas Eve, most of our, our Christian churches have a candle lighting where everybody in the whole congregation holds up their light. Mm-hmm. But also in the Hindu religion, they have Diwali, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a celebration of light. So when you think yes. about the things that unite us, there's a perfect example of three different religious holidays from three different religions, but we all hold up light. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a mysterious, wondrous thing about that. And then I saw, doesn't Kwanzaa have a candelabra kind of? Yes. yes. As so, well. okay, so there you go. 
Anyway. Well, at, anyway. at this point, we're going to shift. We're starting to get some questions in. Building off some of the discussion of the last few moments, there's a question here. Perhaps the fear of getting swamped with the negative prompts folks to only make short comments, to only focus on the, the binary, the yes or no, rather than to explore the depths of their viewpoints. Mm-hmm. How do we fix this? Mm-hmm. And we've talked through that a little bit, but. Well, I think that, I think that's a good point, but I think again, the venue that they're communicating on does not promote or allow deeper discussion. So you shift the venue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's good. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. One of the meditations, this Jewish meditation practice I've been doing talks about when like, you can meditate looking at a candle, right? And so all of us see the yellow part of the candle, but he, he challenges you within meditation, find at least four colors that you see exuding from the candle. And the one he spends the most time on is black. There's that because any, like the intensity of that yellow light is actually shaded, is bounded by an actually palpable black light. And he extrapolates that into this idea that like, you know, God only isn't only in the positive, isn't only in the, in the brightness, but God is in the darkness as well. And so I think like, it's not always possible to avoid the negative. But I do think that how we talk, where we talk, and how we frame what we're trying to say can bracket out some of the negative. And I also think that the longer you talk, not necessarily just saying words, but giving that context and the grounding in your perception, explaining that this is limited to by your limitations as a person, mm-hmm. I think fends off or, or some ways to get a different kind of response or to to open the space for a different kind of conversation. And Dan, let me just say for so many reasons, I'm grateful that you pointed out that God is in the darkness, (laughs) that God exists in it all. Um, I'll just leave that there. Thank you for that. Yes. (laughs) Well, I was also going to just share the idea of story. You know, apologetics is, is a, is a branch of, our Christian theology, but apologetics and that style of conversation is not as helpful right now as story. Mm-hmm. Our personal stories, our community stories, the stories in the gospel, it's stories that really shape and change us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not, you know, point A, point B. It's not this linear argument mm-hmm. um, that is helpful. It, it's stories. Mm-hmm. And when I hear a person's story, it helps me understand why they, why they hold a certain view. Right. And then their story begins to soften my heart and my mm-hmm. story softens their heart. And we, yeah. we, re, we realize that we live, we live in human bodies and have loves and fears and we're more alike than we are different. It's beautiful. And, and, and Betsy, I like that. I like the sharing of stories and learning how to know, understand, appreciate that even when we hear stories and share stories and repeat stories, we do that through a certain experience and lens. So we may still walk away, right? Emphasizing different things and that is okay. No, yeah. Because it all paints a beautiful portrait not when that it's we can okay. allow things. Go ahead, what'd you say, Dan? Sure. It's, it's not that it's okay, it's the point. It's, it's the, the point. point. It's necessary. It is necessary. Right? Like th- there's this, 
you know, this, there's discussion in some Jewish traditions about, you know, if we're all created in God's image, are we all the same or are we all different? Like, what, right. what does that mean? Like, are we all a Xerox copy of Adam? And it's like, right. no, the whole point is that we're not because we all can only see a tiny piece and that we right. actually and need. And God is infinite. Right. Right. So we might all have a tiny spark, right? Like what if yes. the way we played puzzles is everyone got one piece and then we all ran away like that. That's not actually an effective way of, of making a puzzle. Right. But this I, that's not a picture. That's a fragment. And so like this idea that like, how do we rebuild communities of meaning where we all see ourselves as contributing to something larger? I mean, I feel like it's like that book about the absence of bowling leagues and how that was an ominous sign for society. but. I mean, to a certain extent, I don't know like how you guys feel about it, but like, do you think that even religious communities are becoming less community-ish and more like a grouping of a hundred people who are in the same room at the same time? Yes. <laughs> and, and that's something <laughs> that we- The short answer is yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Latricia. I was saying the short answer is yes. Yes, no, I mean, it, I, I think that's a, there's there's a cultural push there, but that's also something that I think that we have to work hard to counteract in as many ways as we can. I, I know one of the things I, I'm constantly feel like I'm saying is, is we have to come together around worship, service, and and mission, our our purpose. I mean that that's what what Jesus brings us to do. And Dan, you you mentioned the the image of God. I mean that that foundational truth of recognizing that every person has dignity and worth whether they're like you or not. I, I mean, and then part of what we're supposed to look like as a Christian community is bringing together people who might have nothing in common except Christ. And again, I'm speaking of, of, of where we're coming from. I mean, that's, or the foundational truth that Christ died for all, that grace is available for all, if you would turn to him, and and that we are to keep that all in mind, that when when Jesus saves you, he doesn't Latricia, you brought this up earlier, doesn't just save you to be solitary, but to be part of a body of people. And the body is not meant to be uniform or, or monochrome or, or however we want to, to describe that. And I think continuing to model and do what we can to help people to experience genuine community is one of the, the key needs of, of people today. Yeah. And, and one of the keys like, is when we have existed in brokenness, part of what, well, all of what Jesus does is teaches us how to love, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of the issue with being all over the place is what becomes the foundational principle that holds us all together. That mm -hmm. when we think we have reached an impasse, whether it is real or imagined, what is it that we turn to that gets to hold us together? And so in the tradition from which I come, a lot of that is an emphasis on love. What does that mean? What does it mean, right, <laughs> for me to love beyond myself in this world where we're all different? And I like that example of, um, I think, Betsy, you said the infinite, because as one that's coming from a mathematical background, um, the closest that we can come to God, our most, our deepest understanding is a mere approximation. There is no way that we can actually get to the infinite nature of the thing that we call God. 
And so much of what we do is then we begin to create a God in our image because we can't imagine ourselves being created in God's image because God exists so far beyond us. And so if we can even think more of ourselves and what is possible, is it possible, and I believe it is, to have this kind of love and concern for other people and harmony? So, yeah. Well, so so what I so I'd like to put some uh, practicality around the word love, mm-hmm. taken directly out of um, again the article Hidden Tribes. Yes, the one thing that bipartisan majorities agree on, and this has to do with our being human beings, right? Made in the image of God, human beings, clean air and water. Mm-hmm. We all need clean air and water. The loving thing to do is to work so that all people have clean air and water. The other thing that the bipartisan majority agreed on is affordable health care. Mm-hmm. Health care. Jesus went around feeding and healing people, right? Healing people. Quality education. Engaging the mind. And then um, the last one, according to the article, it was a right to, to a job. Right. We were created for purpose and to contribute. So um, I was thrilled to see that all these people in this middle, although they may not agree on how to how to achieve, get there. yeah, how to get there. <laughs> love looks like clean water. Love mm-hmm. looks like good schools. Love looks like safety. Love looks like enough to eat. Love mm-hmm. looks like health care. So are you dare suggesting, Betsy, that we should figure out the things that we kind of agree on and work towards making those things happen? I do, I do think that the people on the edges are, you know, this, the, the, the ones that create this idea that we're all polarized. I do think that they speak louder and they have certain buzzwords that tend, tend to a divide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not even going to mention them because I'm sure some of them are coming to mind. But the bottom line is, I'm hungry, and you fed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thirsty, and you gave me a cup of water. Mm-hmm. Um, in the wilderness, there had the manna. Water came out yeah. of the rock. I mean, the basic yeah. needs for human beings should be what we work towards. Look, and I think that the other thing that the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew ethical philosophers all talk about is the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. Absolutely. And I think this gets back to what we're saying. And why do they emphasize that? Because you don't need to write a lot about things people are inclined to do anyway. We're all inclined already to like people who think and look and act like us because we think we're great. And if anyone's acting like us, they must be pretty great too. But the actual injunction, the only thing it actually says you should focus on, and what do we mean by the stranger, the widow, and the orphan? What did they mean then? It meant the people who have no nothing and no access to getting those things. And the stranger is not just the person who's not from your town and not just the Hebrew, but someone you don't get at all. Like that's truly other, right? This is, what is alterity? Like, you know, Levinas is one of my favorite Jewish ethical philosophers says, uh, we all have, he calls it an allergy. We all have like a inbuilt allergy to the other. We want to sneeze. We want to run away. We want to even to the point of killing the other. Like we're so made so uncomfortable. And just because we have that instinct doesn't mean that that's what we should do. Right. So I think like our job at the end of the day is to is to encourage people to explore the things that make them most uncomfortable. I don't know. It doesn't it's not that popular of an idea these days. 
Well, I preached in the Franklin County Jail Sunday, and I was very uncomfortable. In fact, I, I almost called uh, my lay leader, who was actively in, involved at the jail, and mm-hmm. said, I don't feel good. <laughs> um, because I visited in prisons, I visited in jails, but I was super uncomfortable. And let me tell you, it was such a blessing. And to, to something you said earlier, I, I shared with them a book from Prison Wisdom. One of my friends, Katya, taught writing in prisons. Anyway, I read a poem. And the next thing I knew, one of the young women popped up and she said, can I go back to my room? I wrote a poem and I want to share it with you. And she came running back and read from jail. She read this most beautiful piece of poetry she had written that, and then I was invited to share it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, being in places that make you uncomfortable generally come with great blessing yeah. <laughs> and a stretched heart. Absolutely. And the need for opposites as a both and that must be, you know, mathematically, you cannot have <laughs> one without the other. And just as an aside, I'm loving Barry's comments uh, around quantum physics and how quantum physics has allowed us to exist in the both and and us all being astronomically unique. And when we can bring in the things from other spaces, from science, from math, from you know everything, sociology, it helps us to have a bigger picture of what it is we're talking about and working towards and what actually is needed to bring balance to the force. Mm-hmm. So we got to get rid of the silos in academia then, right? Good luck. <laughs> bring them together. <laughs> together. Well, and I was going to close with a question that y'all have already been answering in a lot of ways about how we we can hopefully chart a path forward both as people of faith and communities of faith and and faith leaders uh perhaps as, as we as we close it out here uh, just a, a brief word then on on moving forward and and how we can continue to help to move beyond where we are right now well i mean keep having conversations like this but also again I've loved, I love Village Square. I love God Squad. But wouldn't it be great to have these conversations in spaces out there where, where we have more participation? I don't know how to do that. But it feels like joy to me when, when real conversation happens. So lean into the joy. Light a candle. Yeah. I would say um, having the humility to know that we are not right. (laughs) That even if we think we are right, maybe it's the case that we can't know that we're right. And that every single person, even those with whom we disagree, has something to offer the conversation. And perhaps the beauty happens in the intersection and in the middle if we can ever get there. I read that a, a new planet has literally just been discovered. Well, and if we're people of faith, then we, we are people that can't prove what we believe, right? Except that we want to think that we have the lock and key on the answers. Mm-hmm. What if we entered all of our spaces intentionally with love and humility mm-hmm. for all of who we call the other and recognized people and all of creation, not as the other, but as a part of who I am. 
Preach. Yeah, that's really, you know what it makes me think, Latricia, going off of what you're saying, like how, like, especially when I'm teaching, like with this meditation class, I had that realization, like, how do we move away as human beings from talking about what we think we know and presenting those aspects of ourselves that we're comfortable with and complete with? Like, what if every learning or conversation started with, here's what I'm struggling with? Instead of here's what I know, or that's wrong. Like, and I've just discovered that when I say, here's what I'm struggling with, the immediate effect, it's kind of like asking, like, I need to drink and I don't have a cup. It's the same thing. Like, I don't know how to solve this problem. Like, what I'm struggling with is how do I like, you know, like make myself pray, even if I'm not feeling like I believe in that minute. But whatever it is, if you're really asking, that's how you start a conversation. So I'd say start, let's model, and let's try to be honest with ourselves to always start with what you don't know and what you are working on. I think we always yearn to be and to feel and to present ourselves as more complete than we are. And I think that it's kind of a, you know, it puts people off. And I think like societally, right, everyone wants to have the opinion, the hot take. Like as soon as a topic comes up, here's my absolutely right opinion. And you almost never see someone write back and say, here's what I'm really legitimately struggling with about this. Um, and I just think, yeah, we, we need to invite people in. It's like, how many of us have cleared the psychic space for anyone else to enter into our lives and to, into who we are? Uh, that's good. And I, I appreciate all three of you and in your participation. So thank you, Latricia, Dan, and, and Betsy. Want to thank, thank you all, and want to thank everybody who uh, who joined us and and participated as as we talked about these these very important issues. Thank you, Village Square, and thank you, yes, yes, and look forward to to seeing you all again soon. Thank you, Gary. Yes, see you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. I hope you enjoyed this program. I certainly did. And I am personally feeling a little more hopeful today in this very moment after listening to these wise, wise, wise people. You know, what we learned here in this episode ties in so well with my favorite moment from our last episode, A Defense of Truth with Jonathan Rausch. When Jonathan was talking about workshops they do at Braver Angels, he told us, the single most common reaction from people when they leave the room is, we are not as divided as we've been told. And that completely fits with what we learned at the beginning of this episode. One third of our population is being the loudest and making the rest of us feel like we're more divided than we really are. And this is why I think it really is time for average Americans like you and me, just regular old people to answer the call and take back the narrative. And while I'm on my soapbox, I'll just say that I think this is an area where we, many of us living through this moment in history, we sometimes feel entitled to our democracy and to our freedom, while many of us have not had to participate in the hard work required to make this brilliant American experiment successful. I think many of us, and I'm definitely talking to myself here too, we've sort of been on autopilot and it's kind of been working okay. But here we are now in this moment in time, 
where we're faced with new challenges of a 21st century in an interconnected world where the battlefield has moved into our living rooms and into our pockets. And we have to answer the call to shape solutions that work in this day and age. And I really think that those of us in in the exhausted majority, we have to be vocal participants because, you know, something else that we've learned in various past programs is how our politicians are largely listening to the one third because that's who shows up at the primaries and that's who they hear from the most. And, you know, now this has me thinking about that part of the program where they talked about I thinking versus we thinking. I loved that part. And I think they're really onto something. When it comes to our democracy, most of us haven't had to participate in the we part very much outside of our we groups that we choose to be with. But when we recognize the power of the exhausted majority, people who might not hold your exact same views, but who are not extreme and who likely have core values more similar to our own than we think, that's how we can move the needle. And I think a starting place is to show people who are likely in the exhausted majority that there are other types of conversations and movements out there besides the divisive ones that are in our face all the time. You already know that because you're here with us and there's so many more out there also. So maybe a next step is to bring a friend in, show them the light. And now I'm channeling Betsy with her comments on light. I love that. See, it works in so many ways, Betsy. All right, climbing off my soapbox now. Do you want to know my biggest moment of surprise from this program? That study that they referenced shows that bipartisan majorities agree on affordable health care. What? What? I mean, really, come on. The narrative on the street says the complete opposite. Again, proving that we're not as divided as it seems. How interesting, huh? Remember, you can check out the survey for yourself. We have a link on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast, and then click on episode 49. You can also visit our website to sign up for our newsletter, which is the best way to see what's happening at the Village Square. Just go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom where the little email box is. All right, that's about it for today's program. Let's hear it for Gary, Betsy, Dan, and Latricia. We're so thankful they took on this important topic. And a huge thanks goes to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. Also thanks to Bill and Jill Maddox and Spence Davis for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. Thanks for being on this journey with us, and thanks for joining us for Exhausted with Politics with the God Squad. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Squarecast.